0: Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today I head to Northern Ireland once more to look at events that occurred during the so-called Troubles. As always when I cover these stories, I must emphasise that I touch on the politics only as it's necessary to gain context on the stories. I'm not taking sides and as always on this podcast, my interest is in the events that happened and how they affected normal people. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters, Emma Clements, Jennifer Trebon, and Paula Johnson-Messer. When you think you're safe, you're not. When you think the past is over, it isn't. When you think you know someone, you don't. When you think you've guessed this twist, you haven't. One moment will change three women's lives forever. I'm delighted that this podcast is sponsored by Cross Her Heart, the addictive new thriller from Sarah Pimbra, the number one best-selling author of Behind Her Eyes. I've read both books, and Cross Her Heart is an excellent read. I loved it, and I shared it with friends, but it comes with a warning. Cross Her Heart will keep you up all night as you try and guess the twist. I don't want to tell you any more than that here, but please buy this book today. That is Cross Her Heart by Sarah Pimbra, the number one best-selling author of Behind Her Eyes. Thank you. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Thriver. Thriver allows you to take control and improve your everyday health through an at-home finger-prick blood test. I used it for the first time last week and I was seriously impressed. Thriver allows you to track key biomarkers over time such as cholesterol, liver function, vitamin D, B12, folate, diabetes indicators, and more, so you can track how your lifestyle is affecting your health and recognise trends over time. I liked how easy it was to complete. And when finished, simply return your sample, and within 48 hours, get your GP written results and personal recommendations on how to improve via your online dashboard. So, what are you waiting for? Head to thriver.co and order your baseline or advanced kit. And even better, listeners to this show can get 50% off by using the promo code Crime. That's all capitals. That is thriver.co and use the promo code Crime. Thank you. Let's very briefly set context for today's story by recalling what we were listening to on the 30th of October 1993. Number one in the UK was Meatloaf with I Do Anything For Love, a bracket, but I won't do that, close brackets. There was Hard Rock on both sides of the Atlantic, with Mariah Carey topping the US charts with Dream Lover. And in the Australian album charts for 1993, the top seller was Whitney Houston with the soundtrack from The Bodyguard. In the news this month, legendary rapper Tupac was charged with aggravated assault. Boris Yeltsin declared a state of emergency in Moscow and his troops occupied the Russian parliament and after nine seasons and three championships with the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan announced his retirement from the NBA, before returning on March the 18th, 1995, and leading the Bulls to another three NBA titles. The Ulster Defence Association, or UDA, is the largest Ulster loyalist paramilitary vigilante group in Northern Ireland. It was formed in September 1971, and undertook an armed campaign of almost 24 years as one of the participants of the troubles its declared goal was to defend ulster protestant loyalist areas and to combat irish republicanism particularly the ira it declared a ceasefire in 1994 and officially ended its campaign in 2007 although some would dispute this the vast majority of its victims were irish catholic civilians killed at random in what the group called retaliation for IRA actions or attacks on Protestants. Of course, there were unspeakable atrocities on all sides, and according to the conflict archive on the internet, 3,532 people were killed as a result of this conflict from 1969 to 2001. Just the sheer number of killings is remarkable, let alone all the others injured or suffering psychological trauma. It is no wonder that feelings still run so deep. It was October 23rd 1993, just another ordinary day in Belfast, Northern Ireland. The UDA's Shankill headquarters was above Frizzle's fish shop on the Shankill Road, and their top people regularly met there on a Saturday. The IRA had planned to kill the senior leaders with a bomb. The operation was to be carried out by Thomas Begley and Sean Kelly. Two young IRA members from Ardoyne. They drove from Ardoyne to the Shankill Road in a hijacked Blue Ford escort, which they parked around the corner. Dressed in overalls as deliverymen, they entered the shop with a five pound bomb in the holdall. Nobody in the busy shop gave them a second glance. It was shortly after 1 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon, and the area was crowded with mostly women and children. Kelly held back and stood by the door whilst Begley made his way through the tightly-packed customers towards the counter, where the massive bomb detonated prematurely at 1.06pm. Amon Ferguson and Paddy McGlinchey were paramedics in Belfast, who were on duty and received the call to attend the scene. Speaking later to the Belfast Telegraph, Paddy takes up the story. The crowd was getting so intense that it was starting to impede on us being able to do our jobs although it's very understandable why, because people thought they'd relatives in there. Paddy said that an ambulance was taken by a member of the public after he left his keys in it. I left my keys in the ambulance. I ran back, but it was gone, he said. The ambulance was taken by someone who probably had good intentions, but they may have loaded that up with patients with broken arms, broken limbs, and thinking they were doing a good job getting six people to hospital, but we didn't need those six people taken to hospital. We needed the ambulance for the people who were trapped under the rubble, who were barely breathing. His colleague Amon took up the story. I sort of moved a stone away, and that's when I saw a child's face looking at me through the rubble. I could tell the child was dead, but for some reason. I thought if we could just somehow manage to free this child, then we might be able to resuscitate them. We were digging and digging, trying to free the child. Then I saw another arm underneath the child, which was another child. Eamon added that the death toll just kept rising as he searched through the rubble. You were hoping to dig down and find that it was just rubble, that there weren't as many people there as we first thought. Then you realise, I've found a body here, and you drop your head, he said. This is someone's relative, someone's son, someone's wife, someone's daughter. At the end of that terrible day, bomber Thomas Begley was killed, along with nine other people two of them children. They were owner John Frizell, age 63, his daughter Sharon McBride, 29, Leanne Murray, age 13, UDA member Michael Morrison, 27, and his partner Evelyn Baird, 27, and their daughter Michelle, aged just 7. George Williamson, 63, and his wife Gillian, 49, and Wilma McKee, age 38. The force of the blast caused the old building to collapse into the pile of rubble. The upper floor came down upon those inside the shop, crushing many of the survivors under the rubble, where they remained until rescued some hours later by volunteers in the emergency services. At least 57 people were injured. Lord Justice McDermott later described what had happened as a wanton slaughter that must rank as one of the most outrageous atrocities ever endured by the people of this province. It's hard to disagree. The stories of each of the innocent victims move you to tears. For example, 63-year-old George Williamson and his wife Gillian were happily walking past Frazel's without a care in the world, on their way to buy curtains for the new home they'd just moved into the day before, full of hope and thoughts for the future, when Begley and Kelly detonated their bomb. Sean Kelly the surviving IRA member was badly wounded in the blast having lost his left eye and being unable to move his left arm upon his release from hospital he was arrested and convicted of nine counts of murder each with a corresponding life sentence in July 2000 he was released under the terms of the belfast agreement his colleague thomas begley was seen by many as a hero and at his funeral jerry adams the president of Sinn Fein spoke rousingly of the 22 year old volunteer who made the ultimate sacrifice for his beliefs. Sickening words, I know, to hear about someone who just murdered innocent people. And tensions across Northern Ireland continued to rise. At Begley's wake, a British soldier fired upon a group of mourners standing outside Begley's home from 40 or so yards away in a passing Land Rover. Among those wounded was Republican activist Eddie Copeland, who needed extensive surgery. The court heard that the soldiers had been shown a photograph of Copeland before being sent on patrol. The soldier who fired the shots, Trooper Andrew Clark, was jailed for 10 years for attempted murder. In sentencing him, the judge said, There can be no excuse for a soldier to allow his frustration to boil over, lose his head and shoot at people in the street. When there was no possible justification in law, in the wake of the Shankill bombing, church leaders and politicians pleaded for calm and for no retaliation. Even they knew that they were wasting their breath. It was inevitable in the highly charged atmosphere of the time that the loyalist paramilitaries were going to seek revenge. It started later the same day as the Shankill bombing when they fatally shot a Catholic delivery driver after luring him to a bogus call. Martin Moran, aged just 22, was the father of a five-month-old baby girl when he was killed. Martin's daughter, Amanda, has a picture of her dad's face tattooed on her forearm with the word Daddy below, she said. You feel lost in a way. I would love to know what it feels like to have my daddy around, but I never will. A few days later, on the 26th of October, The UDA shot dead another two Catholic civilians and wounded five in an attack at the council depot in Belfast. Police said a number of men had been shot as the UDA sprayed the yard with 60 bullets as the workers enjoyed their tea break. Two council workers, James Cameron aged 54 and Mark Rogers aged 29 died but it was obvious that the terrorists had been trying to kill many more men. Mark's son was only six when his dad was murdered. Speaking much later, he said, I was only six years old. It had been my birthday two days before. Ever since that day, my birthday has been hard. On the one hand, yes, it's your birthday, and people want to celebrate. But I always know that just two days later, it will be the anniversary of my father's murder. My dad had never judged anyone by religion, and mostly... All I have is stories of him, but my sister Leanne has even less. She was just three when he died. But it was Saturday, the 30th of October, when the most awful revenge imaginable for the Shankill Road bombing took place. The leadership of the UDA targeted a pub for the retaliation. The Rising Sun Bar was far away from Belfast, without the security presence in the city centre following the Frizzell's fish-shot murders. The bar just off the main derry to limavardy Road was completely unremarkable and one of a kind that could be found all across Ireland. A normal pub in a small community where everyone knew everyone else and people of all ages and backgrounds mixed. As happened every year, the villagers came together that night for a Halloween celebration, blissfully unaware of the horror which was about to unfold, and change their lives forever. On the morning of the attack itself, the planners, and those who would carry out the murderous assault, met at a safe UDA house. The planning was meticulous, with concealed weapons recovered, getaway cars prepared, and alibis created. Torrens Knight, Geoffrey Deeney, and Stephen Irwin were the men who were tasked with carrying out the act of revenge. That afternoon members of the gang drove to the Rising Sun where they went into the bar and placed an order. This was to familiarise themselves with the layout of the pub and to decide on the best positions to fire from. At the safe house, the group even turned a room into a mock-up of the Rising Sun bar. They positioned Irwin and Dini at the door and showed them how to enter the pub as well as making them rehearse the actual shootings that were planned. It was agreed that Irwin would fire the AK-47 until its magazine was empty. Whilst Irwin reloaded the assault weapon, Dini would fire the 9mm pistol until Irwin was ready to take over again. Dini would then fire the handgun once more to cover their exit from the pub. And during the murderous assault, Knight would be at the entrance to the Rising Sun with the sawn-off shotgun covering that area. During the rehearsal, it was also agreed that as well as driving the clean car to the pick-up point after the attack, one of the planners, Brian McNeil, would drive a scout car in front of the Opal cadets carrying the killers to Greysteel. He was to use a pre arranged signal of tapping his brake lights three times to warn the murderers if there were any police checkpoints ahead. It was after 9.30pm that the three UDA members, two of whom were wearing blue boiler suits and balaclavas, entered the Rising Sun bar in grey steel. There were about 70 people inside at the party, having fun and forgetting their day-to-day worries and concerns for a while. And so the masked men were not noticed until they produced a VZ-58 rifle and a 9mm pistol and started shooting into the packed crowd in the lounge area. The leading gunman, Stephen Irwin, yelled trick-or-treat as he opened fire. He emptied the magazine before reloading and continuing to shoot at his screaming, terror-filled victims. Geoffrey Deeney opened fire with a 9mm handgun, but it jammed, whilst a third member, Torrens Knight, stood guard at the door with his shotgun. The scene was chaotic as people inside the lounge began to scream in panic, with some pleading for mercy from the gunman, but to no avail. Seven victims died at the scene in Greysteel, with another dying from his injuries later. Six of those killed were Catholic civilians and two were Protestant civilians. None had any known links to political parties or paramilitaries. The killers, laughing, then made their escape in their getaway car, and afterwards they were said to have boasted about the killings. I want to give you as much information as I can about the people. lost their lives that terrible night, and the following is direct from the Belfast Times. Karen Thompson was just 19. The youngest of the victims, she was sitting with her boyfriend Stephen Mullen. She was the first to be killed. Before the firing started and Stephen Irwin had shouted, trick or treat, she told him, that's not funny. Karen went to Linvardi Grammar School. Her mum, Olive, was Catholic. Her dad, Anthony, was Protestant. Her boyfriend Stephen Mullen was 20. He died from his wounds on the way to hospital. He was a joiner and the eldest in the family of two sons and three daughters and he and Karen were thought to be planning to get engaged at Christmas. Joe McDermott was 60. He was a single man who was devoted to his pets and although a reclusive person, he was a familiar sight to local people as he walked for miles on roads around the area. He could often be seen walking the five or six miles to Eglinton from his house to buy milk for his cats. His cats were his only companions. He lived a very, very lonely life. Moira Duddy was 59. She was a mum of six children. One of her sons was later quoted as saying, The people who did this are just mad. It is all innocent people who get it. They were sitting in a group of four, All my father saw was the barrel of the gun and he told them to get down. My mum was the only one of the four to get shot. It later emerged that one of the killers had worked with one of Moira's sons and wrote to him from prison. James Moore was 81. The oldest to die, he was discovered by his son, who owned the Rising Sun pub, lying dead beside the cigarette machine, with one wound to the head and three to his body. I heard the bangs and thought it was fireworks, his son also called James, said, speaking after the atrocity. The first I saw was my father lying there dead. Then the next was a 19-year-old girl that finished it. I know my own father's dead, but I don't want any retaliation. Catholics and Protestants get on well here, and I hope it can stay like that. His wife never returned home after the incident, because of memories of the shooting. John Moyne was 50. He was a father of three teenage children and worked as a supervisor at the nearby chemical factory. Speaking at the time, his wife Lily said, My husband and I had only entered the rising sun a few moments when the gunman appeared. My husband realised what was happening and threw me to the ground to protect me. Had it not been for his quick reaction, I too would have been killed. Samuel Victor Montgomery was 76. A retired farmer and former commander in the B specials, He collapsed and died at his sister's home months after the Grey Steel attack. His death resulted from blood clots in his legs, caused by his injuries in the shooting, which shifted to his heart and his lungs. And finally, John Burns, who was fifty-four, married with three children. His wife was also shot and badly injured in the massacre. John, who lived in Eglinton, was a former soldier with the Ulster Defence Regiment. He had sons aged 19 and 16 and a daughter, aged 14. Andre Johnson, who was working as a local taxi driver that night and was one of the first people on the scene, almost 25 years on, told the Belfast Telegraph newspaper just what he had seen. The victims were there in the bar. It was a horrendous sight, young and old. There was a young woman still sitting in her seat, dead. There was an older man at the door. They must have got him when they came in the door. There was a woman who I dropped off in my taxi just hours earlier. These were people I knew, they were friends. It was horrendous to witness something as horrific as that. I walked to the door and had the mind to try and stop any relatives of those poor people coming in to see this until the police arrived. I just knew that they would be scarred for life, he said. Greysteel is such a small village and when people heard what had happened they ran down and were there in minutes. In the end, I had to stand back and let them go in. The police arrived then. It was mayhem. No one seemed to know what to do. Panic struck and there was a worry that the nearby Longfield Inn would be targeted. But the police said that those who had done this had done their hit and would be away now. Survivors were standing around in absolute shock. I did what I could to comfort the husband of one of the victims. I just put him down in the chair and sat with him. I stayed with him. Ambulances arrived and people were trying to get people out into them. People were starting to filter in. There was a priest there and the reality of it all started to filter through. Andre also worked with his father-in-law and a funeral directors and found himself back at the rising sun in the early hours of the morning, removing the bodies of the dead. At 3am my father-in-law called me and said that we needed to go back down to the rising sun and removed the bodies of those who had passed away. We arrived there with our hearses and were able to take the people out before the morning, before the press came, in the quiet of the night. He said he was still affected by what he had seen that night. I can still smell the smoke from their guns 25 years later, he said. That night still haunts me. The following day, the UDA publicly took responsibility for the murderous attack. It said in a statement that the Greysteel raid was a continuation of our threats against the Nationalist electorate that they would pay a heavy price for Saturday's murder of nine Protestants. A West Belfast UDA member claimed that his organisation had information that senior IRA men drank in the rising sun. Unfortunately, they were not there on Halloween, but our boys acted on the briefing that they'd been given. The utter revulsion across the community at what had happened meant that the killers were soon picked up by the police. During their first court appearance, Knight was filmed laughing, taunting and shouting abuse at the victim's relatives as he was led from the building. In 1995, Stephen Irwin, Geoffrey Deaney, Torrens Knight and Brian McNeil were sentenced to life imprisonment for the murders. Knight was also convicted for the role he played in another terrible attack. In Castle Rock. The four were released from jail in 2000 as part of the early release of prisoners as part of the Good Friday Agreement. As they left jail, they were met by the UDA commander who ordered the massacre. Also released was the surviving bomber from the Shankill Road atrocity, Sean Kelly. The IRA commander who sent him into Frizzell's fish shop on the Shanklin Road was there to meet him too. Kelly, smiled as he left jail. he had served the equivalent of just nine months each of his nine life sentences. However, Stephen Irwin was returned to prison in 2005 for four years for slashing a man with a knife at a football match. And in October 2009, Knight was found guilty of assaulting two sisters in a bar in Coleraine. As a result, his early release licence was suspended and he too was returned to jail. We've spoken briefly about the victims of the awful crimes we've looked at today, but what of the murderers? How did they get to a point in their lives when they could possibly believe that what they were doing had any justification? By 2016, Torrens Knight was a free man and had apparently found God and spoke candidly, if you believe he is now capable of telling the truth, that is, to the Belfast Telegraph about what had led him to that point in his life where he was able to slaughter innocent people. As a child, he lived with his deeply religious grandma and dad on a farm after his parents' marriage broke up. But he became addicted to poker machines at a local pub and stole money from a purse where his grandma kept money for church missions. When this was discovered, his dad and grandma told him to leave and he moved to Port Stewart with a friend from a hardline loyalist background who'd been told to leave his family home when he dated a Catholic girl. Night continued. I went to Port Stewart to live. I started drinking and going out. I lost the influence and fear of my dad. One thing led to another. I had anger issues. I would say I had a chip on my shoulder, and I got involved in criminality. A few years later, I got involved in an organisation. I started off just going round the doors selling magazines for the Loyalist Prisoners Association and lifting money. I enjoyed it. Then I progressed. I moved up into the UDA. Going round the doors wasn't enough. I started doing robberies and beatings, things like that. But that still wasn't enough for me. I wanted to go further. I progressed to the UFF, which was really the murder teams of the loyalist paramilitaries. My life just spiralled out of control. I joined the organisation to fight against the IRA who I saw as the enemy and it just progressed and progressed. It was a scary time. I got involved in shooting and ended up killing not only IRA men but also killing innocent people. That was a thing I never thought I would do. I never planned it. It was just like I was going down a road of destruction and I liked it because it fuelled my anger. He said he looked on the UDA as his family I was part of something. I felt special. I had boys who had watched my back, and I would do the same for them. Then the Shankill bomb happened, and orders came down the line that something big was going down, and I was asked to take charge of the team that were going to carry it out. I didn't question it. I'd have done anything I was asked to do by UDA leaders at that point. At the time, we were so, in a way, brainwashed. That's being truthful. We believed that what we were doing was right. And what of the bomber Tom Begley, who lost his life at the Shankill Road bombing? His mum and dad still live in the same house where Tom Begley was brought up. In their late son's bedroom, his rosary beads and a poster of the Irish Declaration of Independence still hangs above his bed untouched. His dad acknowledges that his son was dedicated to a United Island and held Republican beliefs but says the entire family was shocked when they discovered he joined the IRA. We know he was used, that he was set up. He was young and impressionable, and he got dragged into something. The morning I got the news, I thought he'd just been caught up in a bomb. I can't tell you what it was like to cry for your son, and then hear he had planted the bomb. Tom Begley was known in the community as, well, not being the brightest. He left school without a single qualification and struggled to hold down any job. He had no reputation as an IRA man. Foolishness rather than brutishness was his distinguishing trait. It is said by many that it's an open secret in Belfast that he was lured into the IRA ranks by cynical elders who knew they could exploit his naivety. So two young men there, on different sides of the conflict, both looking for meaning and direction in their lives and exploited by others to promote a cause. Hasn't it always been the way? The terrible loss of life in the two major tragedies covered today was, for many, a turning point in the conflict in Northern Ireland. People from all parts of the community came together to put pressure on the paramilitary organisations and the politicians to end this terrible waste of life. The two atrocities marked one of the darkest weeks of the Troubles and are believed to have acted as a catalyst to efforts to build peace. And within a year, the IRA, UDA and UVF had all declared ceasefires. The pub is still open in Greysteel. There is a memorial to the victims outside the building that says May their sacrifice be our path to peace. And in October last year there were moving scenes as the 25-year anniversary of both attacks was marked with a number of moving events to remember all of those who had lost their lives or otherwise suffered as a result of the terrible events a quarter of a century before. There were many moving tributes, but among those who spoke was Adrian Moyne, whose dad was killed at the Rising Sun pub when Adrian was just 15. He said, My dad was a good man. He taught us right from wrong. He taught us to help others. He taught us we have choices in life. There is a huge sense of community here in Greysteel. The attack could have brought a negative change to around here, but it didn't. We could have put a negative spin on all this, but we followed my dad's example and we chose to look at it in a positive way. I don't pretend that it wasn't hard. Our childhood stopped in a very public way. There were times we stumbled. But those who carried out these murders never broke us. They could never break us. They never stopped us for a second. They achieved nothing. Their only success was making us stronger and more determined. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To talk about this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join our Facebook group. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com Slash UK True Crime, where you can listen to 25 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that is all for me for now. Next week, exciting news to reveal. Note nothing to do with Saunas in Rochdale or the new series of Alan Partridge, but good guesses. So until we speak again next week, take it easy and of course, stay classy. <laughs> CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.